Pastor. Now. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the sheep, uh, the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his land, hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to come to these words. These words, are, for many of us, are familiar. We've, we've heard them many times or heard words like them many times in our lives. Uh, but we also find in this psalm some extremely strong and, and somewhat disturbing words as well. You having wrath loathing that generation. And so we, we need your help as we come to this psalm this morning. We ask that you would give us understanding. We ask that you would give us humility. Would you help us to respond to this call? Would you help us respond to these words by not hardening our hearts, by opening ourselves to what you have to say, to what you want to do, to how you are present by your spirit even now. Would you open our eyes and our ears, our minds and our hearts to receive your word and to be changed by it. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. As school is commencing all around us in the next few weeks, uh, that reminds me of something that happened at the beginning of the second semester of my freshman year of college. I had a semester under my belt. I thought I knew what I was doing. And so on the first day of the semester, I went to my first class, which was the second semester of freshman English composition. And I made my, my, my way confidently to this class, and, but when I walked in the room, I didn't recognize anyone in the room. But that wasn't too unusual. It was a very large university. There were many units of this class. And so I sat down and the professor came in and began to introduce the course. And I quickly realized that I was not in freshman English composition, uh, but I was in an advanced writing class uh, for juniors and seniors who were English majors. I was neither a junior nor a senior nor an English major. And so I was in the wrong room. I had found my way to the wrong room, and fortunately the professor, towards the beginning of his talk, said, hey, if you aren't registered for this class or if you're in the wrong room, you can leave now. And so I blushingly got up and left as quickly as possible. Some of you have had an experience like that. Have you ever found yourself in the wrong room? I wonder if some of you feel like that this morning in this room. 
I wonder if you have ever felt like that in other rooms where Christians gather for worship. Have you ever felt like you're in the wrong room? Sometimes so many of us have done this so often that we forget how strange it is. How strange it is that we come in this room every week and we sit down and we stand up and we speak and even more strangely, we sing words together and then we sit down and and listen to some guy talk for a while and then perhaps the most strangest thing of all, we eat these little pieces of bread dipped in grape juice. That is really strange behavior. Are we in the wrong room? I think it's worthwhile for us every once in a while to stop and ask, what are we doing here? And why and should we be here? Should we be in this room doing these things? And those are the types of questions that I want to bring to Psalm 95 this morning because this is not only a song of worship, it is a song about worship. And so I want to come to this song together and I want us to find two good reasons for us to be in this room. We should be in this room because of the beginning of worship and because of the end of worship. So first of all, we should be here because of the beginning of worship. Worship starts where Psalm 95 starts. It starts with a call, with a demand, with an authoritative invitation. Come. And then that word repeats over and over again throughout this psalm. Worship begins with a call, and it is a call, it is a demand for action. It is an authoritative invitation invitation to do things. And we see two particular types of actions in this psalm. It is a call to celebrate, and it is a call to submit. It's a call to sing, to elevate speech with melody, harmony, and rhythm. And it is a call to bow down to surrender to something that is higher and better than us. And so the reason we do what we do in worship is because of this call. So we come here and we sing, we celebrate, but we also come here and we act in submission. We confess and we pray and we listen, all acts of surrender. And then I want you to notice two aspects of these two actions. Okay, these actions are both communal. Come, let us. You cannot respond and fulfill the call to worship on your own. It is a group project. These actions are communal and they are also structured. There's a pattern, there's a rhythm, there's an 
order that we see here and throughout scripture. And that pattern has shaped Christian worship throughout history and it shapes our service today. It's why we follow a liturgy. It's why we do similar things in a similar order every week. It's because we see in response to the call to worship in scripture these things done in this order. But as important as all of that is, those two actions and the two aspects of those two actions, as important as all of that is, that is not the true beginning of worship. The true beginning of worship isn't how it starts, it's why it starts. The true beginning of worship isn't the call, it is the reason for the call. It's that little word for in verses three and seven. So why should we celebrate? Why should we surrender? For the Lord is God, for he is God. Quite simply, we should celebrate and surrender because of God, because of who he is and what he has done. And Psalm 95 says that this God who we should celebrate, this God to whom we should surrender, he is the creator. He is the maker. The emphasis here on God as creator is not just God as originator, but God as possessor. It's not just that he has made all things, but he holds the heights and the depths, the sea and the land. He holds all things together and all things are are his. And so we should celebrate and so we should surrender. But God is not only the maker, he is also the shepherd. He not only possesses all things, he possesses a particular people. Not only are the heights and the depths, the sea and the land in his hand, there is also a group of sheep, a flock that belongs to his hand. For those who respond to this call to worship, he is their provider, he is their sustainer, he is their protector. And so why should we be in this room? because of him it's because of who he is it's because of what he has done relationships and community are very important to us here at walnut creek and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks but we are not here because we like the people in this room we are here because of him we are not here You are not here, you should not be here because this church meets your preferences. You should be in this room because in worship we meet God. And he is infinitely worthy of our celebration and our submission. I had the opportunity once Uh, to see the play by Tom Stoppard called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead. And what Stoppard does in, in this play is he takes two minor characters, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, two minor characters from Shakespeare's play Hamlet. 
and he imagines what life is like for these minor characters. He imagines what it would be like to spend most of your time off stage, to spend most of your time in the wings while all of the main action is happening on stage. And so these two characters throughout this play, they muse philosophical about meaning and purpose. They wonder if there is a playwright and if that playwright knows what he's doing. They wonder if it's just all random. And they express this with a repeated question. Over and over throughout the play, they ask, have we been summoned? Have we been summoned? Have we been summoned? Is there someone who has summoned us to meaningful action? I think that's a really profound question. And I think that is a profoundly important question for our lives. Have we been summoned? Has someone summoned us to meaningful action, meaningful participation in the drama. And worship answers that question with a resounding yes. You have been summoned to the most meaningful action imaginable. God, not only by his word, but by his character and his work, by his very self, has summoned you into the drama that displays his greatness and his goodness, his transcendent majesty and his imminent mercy. You have been summoned. And we need to remember as we come here, our world is crying out for that. That is the cry of the human soul. It is, I don't think I'm spoiling anything with this, but it is so interesting to me that underneath the final emotionally moving scenes of the new Barbie movie, is playing a song. And it is a song sung by Billie Eilish. Underneath those final emotionally moving scenes, Billie Eilish sings another question. She sings a question over and over again. What was I made for? What was I made for? What was I made for? In a world where the dominant message is self-making, isn't it fascinating that one of the most popular cultural artifacts in recent memory puts in front of us the question, what was I made for? What was I made for? And worship answers that question resoundingly as well. You were made to be summoned. You are made to be summoned into celebration and into surrender on who is your maker and who is your shepherd. That's why you should be in this room. This is what you were made for. But if we're honest, part of us doesn't like that. We prefer optional invitations, not authoritative invitations. 
We prefer to be self-authored. We would rather write the script of our lives rather than surrender to another playwright. So why should we respond to this summons? Why should we respond to this call? The question is still in front of us. Why should we be in this room? And we find a second reason, not only the beginning of worship, but the end of worship as well. And when I use the word end, I don't mean when worship is over. I'm using the word end in the sense of goal or destination. And we find the end of worship at the end of Psalm 95. In verse 8, the poet, poet shifts from calling to talking about history. And he talks about the history of the failure of God's people in the wilderness after he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And he talks about these two moments at Meribah and Massah. And it seems as if he has randomly changed the subject. But he hasn't. He is still talking about worship. Because what happened at Meribah and Massah? In both of these cases, the people found themselves in desperate need of water. And in both of these cases, instead of turning to their maker and their shepherd, instead of turning to God as the source of their life, they turned away from him. And they said, is God even among us? Why did we even come out here in the desert in the first place? Maybe we should just go back to Egypt. And so see these moments, they are failures in worship. They are failures to celebrate and to surrender. They are failures to attend to who God is and what he had done. And notice what happens as a result of these failures in worship. Verse 11, they did not enter into God's rest. And the poet is negatively showing us the positive goal of worship. The people, because of their failures in worship, they got lost and they did not reach their destination. And the destination that they failed to reach is the destination of worship. It is the end of worship. The end of worship is rest. So if you've nodded asleep during the sermon this morning, mission accomplished. <laughs> right? No, we understand that this, this rest is something more than a nap, right? And so what does it mean? What does it mean to enter into God's rest? Well, where were the people headed in the desert? Where were they supposed to go while they wandered in the wilderness? They were supposed to go to a land that God had promised to them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, that, that does not mean that it is a land of inactivity. It is not a land of endless naps. It is a land to be cultivated and then to enjoy the fruitfulness that results from that cultivation. It's a place for work. So why is it called rest? Well, the beginning of the answer to that is not in Exodus or Numbers, but it is in Genesis. When God made all things and called all things good, and then he rested. And God rested not because he's tired. God doesn't get tired. God rested because he was happy. 
Because he was satisfied. Because he was enjoying the full goodness of what he had made. It's the rest of working really hard to prepare a meal and then sitting at the table and enjoying that meal. And to enter the rest of God is to join him at that table. It is to join him in the enjoyment of the fullness of life that he has made and that he intends for us and for all things. And the land he had promised to his people was supposed to be the, be the beginning of a return to that. It was supposed to be a place where God dwelled with his people and they enjoyed the fruitfulness, the fullness of life that results from God dwelling with his people. This land was supposed to be the beginning of a new Eden. And the point of Psalm 95 is that that possibility The possibility of a new Eden, the possibility of joining the joy, the infinite joy of God is still there. It was not negated by the failure of that first generation in the wilderness. That possibility is still there. And so verse seven says, today, if you hear his voice, Harden not your hearts. That's why there's a third action of worship here. Not just celebrating, not just submitting, but entering the presence of God. Because that's what rest looks like. And that is the end of worship. Worship is a pilgrimage towards the Sabbath table, towards joining God in his joy over what he has made, over what he has done, is doing, and will do. And that pilgrimage is a possibility for us even more now. Because the New Testament book of Hebrews picks up Psalm 95 and says, because of Jesus, because in Jesus the creator entered his creation, the playwright entered the story, because Jesus suffered the wrath at the end of Psalm 95, he holds out these words to us in the middle of Psalm 95 and says, today if you will hear his voice, Jesus in worship draws near to us and becomes the good shepherd who leads us beside still water, who leads us to the green pastures, who sets a table for us, who draws us towards that Sabbath table, towards that communion with God and his joy. And that's why we should be here. We should be here because Jesus is here, leading us on that pilgrimage into God's rest.
Yo-Yo Ma is one of the greatest musicians, one of the greatest artists of our time. And if you've ever seen him perform, you know that he is not just good at playing the cello. But he plays with a passion, with a presence, with a delight that draws you in to what he was doing, to what he's doing. And he was asked once about that. And he says that is not just the result of hard work. That's not just the result of talent. That is the result of the way he imagines himself as a musician. He says, I imagine myself not as a performer, but as a host for a dinner party. So that what I am playing, I'm not just trying to get the notes exactly right, but I am trying to welcome the listeners in to the delight and the beauty of that music. And that's what Jesus is doing right now in this room. That's what Jesus is doing every time we gather in his name for worship. He is acting as a host. And he didn't just work really hard, but he gave his life to become that good shepherd who draws us to the table, who draws us to the eternal rest of God. And that's why you should be in this room. And so this morning, and next week, and the next week, and the next week, and the next week, Walnut Creek, today, will we hear his voice? And will we come and let him draw us into his rest. Let's pray. Father, we do come in celebration and surrender to who you are. You are our maker. You are our shepherd. You are worthy of our adoration you are worthy of our highest loyalty and our deepest trust. And so we do come and we worship you. And we do come and we long to be a worshiping people, a people who give themselves to what this psalm calls us to. Would you make Walnut Creek that? But would you help us not just to come with celebration and surrender, but would you help us to come with an awakened awareness that as we gather, your presence is here. That by your Son and Spirit, we are drawn in worship towards your rest. We are drawn to that table of joy where we commune with you and your purpose, your design for us and for all things. Father, would you help us not to harden our hearts? Would you help us to open our lives to Jesus, who now leads us